0: Good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. We uh um, just want to uh invite you um, to remain this afternoon for our congregational lunch and for going deeper uh this afternoon. We're going to be talking about the, the New Testament canon and what we ought to know about that. You know, every uh every week as we're putting together the bulletin and the uh, the slides for the, the PowerPoint, we're going over and we're, you know, double checking and proofreading and so forth, and we almost spelled canon, C-A-N-N-O-N, and I need to assure you, I have not come across anything in the New Testament referring to artillery, This is the proper way to spell canon. We're talking about the books that are included in our New Testament. How did that happen? Why the books that are in it and why not others? We're going to be talking about a lot of those things this afternoon. So please uh, stay around and and join us both for lunch and for uh, going deeper this afternoon. Um, I know a lot of you have been praying for my mother-in-law, and I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Uh, Please continue. She's doing well. Um, It was a TIA. It was like a mini stroke, so it was not full-blown, and she recovered pretty quickly. Uh, We took her home Wednesday, and um, if you didn't know what she had been through, you wouldn't know that anything had happened. Uh, So praise God for that. We were able to stop on the way home for dinner because she was tired of hospital food and she had a great appetite and um, continue to, to to pray for her. The doctors are still running various tests and trying to work out medication and all of that. So uh, thank you uh, again for your, your prayers in that regard and continue to pray for all of our people. We've got um, a number of requests within our bulletin for our church family. And so please keep that before you throughout the week. Revelation chapter 21, verse 3 says this, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Father, we do look forward to that day when we will dwell with you forever in the new heaven and the new earth. And you, Father, will be among us. Father, we are grateful for that promise and the encouragement that it brings. And we know, Father, that even now, in a different way, you are among your people. You are here with us today. And we desire, Father, to hear your voice through your word this day. We pray, Father, that you would give us receptive hearts, submissive hearts. And, Father, we pray as well that you would receive the worship of your people as it is offered you in the name of Jesus. It is in that precious name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand together as we worship our Lord.
1: Thy church is full, that all thy chosen race may with one voice and heart and soul sing thy redeeming. all-knowing he counts not their sum thrown into a sea without bottom or shore our sins they are made
2: Continuing our reading in the book of Ezekiel. We'll be looking at Ezekiel chapter 17, the second half, which starts off from verse 11 and concludes at verse 24. Hear the word of the Lord. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, say now to the rebellious house, do you not know what these things mean? Say, behold. The king of Babylon came to Jerusalem, took its king and princes, and brought them to him in Babylon. He took one of the royal family and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath. He took also away the mighty of the land, that the kingdom might be in subjection, not exalting himself, but keeping his covenant that it might continue. But he rebelled against him by sending his envoys to Egypt that they might give him horses and many troops. Will he succeed? Will he who does such things escape? Can he indeed break the covenant and escape? As I live, declares the Lord, surely in the country of the king who put him on the throne, whose oath he... Who who he despised and whose covenant he broke, in Babylon he shall die. Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company will not help him in the war when they cast up ramps and build siege walls to cut off many lives. Now he despised the oath by breaking the covenant and behold, he pledges allegiance, yet did all these things, he shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely my oath, which he despised and my covenant, which he broke, I will inflict on his head. I will spread out my net over him and he will be caught in my snare. Then I will bring him into Babylon and enter into judgment with him there regarding their unfaithful act, which he has committed against me. All the choice men in all his troops will fall by the sword, and the survivors will be scattered to every wind. And you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. Thus says the Lord God, I will also take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and set it out. I will pluck it from the topmost of its young twig, a tender one, and I will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the high mountain of Israel, I will plant it that it may bring forth bows and bear fruits and become a stately cedar and birds of every kind will nest under it. They will nest in the shades of its branches. All the trees of the fields will know that I am the Lord. I bring down the high tree, exalt the low tree, dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will perform it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, this is the conclusion of the parable that we were first introduced to last week. And what we see here in the second half of chapter 17 is the meaning of the parable given to us. Here, Ezekiel's story about the two eagles the cedar tree and the vine could actually be considered as a type of fable. And if you remember uh, anything about stories, a fable is where the characters are personified as animals or things as trees. And they can be sometimes entertaining to read, but biblical fables are meant to teach important lessons. The first part identifies the character of of the parable that we read last week before spelling out the moral of the story. The first eagle is the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, who takes Judah's king Jehoiachin, which was the twig, to Babylon into captivity. The royal offspring or the seed is Zedekiah. And of course you remember the story of Zedekiah and his tragic end because of His failure was to break the covenant with Nebuchadnezzar by turning to Egypt, whose king was Hophra, the lesser eagle that we read in the parable last week. Ultimately, hope in Egyptian aid will prove useless. Breaking this political covenant will bring disaster on Zedekiah and his people. And it was some time ago that we read that Judah was told to go by God willingly to Babylon. And if they didn't, it would be seen as an act of rebellion against God himself, who was sending them there as part of his judgment. But Zedekiah rebelled, not just against Babylon, but against the very will of God by aligning himself with Egypt, for help against Babylon instead of going willingly. In the eyes of God, this goes against his instructions and is the reason that he brings, if you recall, the accusation of adultery against his people. They keep being unfaithful to God, like a cheating wife who keeps running to her lovers, playing the part of the adulteress. And this is the moral of the story running into the arms of anyone or anything else as our rescue other than God who has saved us, who has made covenant with us, who provides all of our needs daily is an act of unfaithfulness on our part. And doing so is playing the part of adultery. So brothers and sisters, I commend you. I exhort you actually, don't do it. Remember, God has already purchased us by the blood of his son, and now we belong to him. There is none other than Christ who has and continues to provide for us daily. So let's be faithful in keeping our covenant with him. Lastly, in the end of the parable, there is a sprig that God will take himself from the topmost of that same tree, that we read about the two eagles, had gotten their sprig from. God will take that sprig, plant it so that it may bear fruit and provide comfort and rest for every bird of every kind. This is a messianic promise that we're looking at of Christ. Christ, who will be exalted because of his coming work of redemption. So again, for this very purpose, for this very reason, let us remain faithful to God since he is always faithful to us. Amen? This is the word of the Lord.
0: Father, we are grateful for your word and for the reminder this morning that you are always faithful. And your faithfulness does not depend upon us, upon our response to you. You are faithful because that is your nature. You promise, and you keep your promises. You promise, and you keep your word. And Father, we as your people who have experienced your faithfulness know that we are unfaithful. And we confess that to you this morning, Father, but we rest in your grace, for you have promised that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and indeed, in Christ you have. And we are grateful. Father, receive our gratitude, our thanksgiving, our adoration in the name of Christ today. Amen. Amen. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Psalms. We're continuing to read through the book of Psalms this morning. We come to Psalm 147, beginning with verse 12. and I'll be reading through verse 20. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he has strengthened the bars of your gates. He has blessed your sons within you. He makes peace in your borders. He satisfies you with the finest of the wheat. He sends forth his command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters the frost like ashes. He casts forth his ice as fragments, who can stand before his cold? He sends his he sends forth his word and melts them. He causes his wind to blow and the waters to flow. He declares his words to Jacob, his statutes and his ordinances to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation, and as for his ordinances, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. Father, we join in with the psalmist in praising you and giving you glory for who you are and what you have done. Father, you chose in your old covenant relationship to establish that relationship with ancient Israel. And you did so, Father, as a picture of what you would do under the new covenant with your church. And so, Father, what the psalmist says here in regard to ancient Israel We pick up, and Father, we give you praise, for the same is true for us. You are a powerful God who redeems. You have given us your word, your ordinances, and we are blessed by them. We thank you, Father, that we are a part of what is referred to in your word as a holy nation, a people for your own possession. And as such, Father, we are in relationship not only with you, but with one another. We are brothers and sisters. And I thank you, Father, for the family that you have established here at Red Mills and for the care that is exhibited toward one another as we serve one another, Father, and certainly as we pray for one another. And Father, we do that this morning. I personally am grateful for the prayers that have gone up on behalf of my family. Father, it is a joy to know that the brethren are interceding. And we do that this morning, Father, for those in our number who are in need of your ministry to them. Father, we pray that you would pour out your grace on your people. We know that there are those who are suffering physically, and we pray, Father, that you would bring them comfort and encouragement. We know that there are those who are suffering spiritually as well, and we pray for them, Father, that those who are drifting would be brought back, that you would extend, Father, your gracious hand and draw those who are in need of repentance to repentance, that they might walk with you once again. Father, we pray that this day, as your word is opened, that we might hear your word. And we pray, Father, that as your word is opened in churches around the world, that you might accomplish good things for your people. But, Father, we desire to pray for the world as well. Those who need to hear the gospel as we once did. Father, send out your gospel and draw your people to yourself. May the lost, Father, see the beauty and the majesty of Christ. May they understand the wonder of grace and bow themselves before you. Father, we pray as your word commands us for our leaders and for those in authority. We pray, Father, first that they would come to understand the gospel and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. We pray, Father, in so doing, that they would submit themselves to your word. But, Father, we pray, too, for their rule over us. We pray, Father, that those that you have established in positions of authority would rule justly. Cause them, Father, to see and to know what is right. And we pray, Father, for our church, for the church... That as we pray for leaders and those in authority, Father, that we might be permitted to live quiet and tranquil lives in all godliness and dignity. Father, may this come about. We know that you are a sovereign God and you control all things. Bring about your will, Father, in our church, in our nation, in this world. Until Jesus comes and all is made Right, In these things, Father, we give you thanks. In the name of our Savior, amen. amen. Gentlemen, will you come forward, please? Father, at this time of the service, we recognize that all that we have comes from you. You are, as James tells us, the giver of all good gifts. And as one aspect of our worship, Father, we now return some to you that you have given to us. Receive it, Father, from cheerful hearts and use it for the building of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.
2: for the word. Father, we do pray that you would bless our pastor as he comes, opening up the scripture and reading to us the passage today, that you would give him the grace to speak effectively uh, so that the people of God upon hearing might be built up in the truth to your glory. We pray. Amen. Amen.
0: Return with me, if you would, in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We continue our study through this epistle of Paul to his disciple Timothy, who is pastoring the church at Ephesus. Paul is writing to Timothy in order to give him counsel concerning how things are to be done in the church. We have said over and over again in our study of this epistle that... In chapter 3, verse 15, Paul gives us the purpose statement of his epistle when he says, I write to you so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. We're going to be looking at verses 11 through 15 this morning. Let me read it for you. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity, with self restraint. Father, this is your word. Give us understanding, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. Well, here we are. Obviously, this is a passage that um, is a tad bit controversial. And there are those who would desire to find various ways around it. But let me remind us this morning that as believers in Jesus Christ, we come to the Scripture with an understanding of its nature that it is the Word of God. So we do not come to the Scripture to argue with it. We don't come to the Scripture to try to find ways around it. That is not our place. I'm put in mind of uh, something I heard once from a, uh, that was taking place within a, a, a debate. It was a debate between a Christian and an atheist. And the atheist was trying to Obviously, come up with arguments against the existence of God. And the Christian likened what he was doing to this. He said it's like, he used the example of a June bug. I don't really know what a June bug is. Say ladybug. It's like a ladybug coming up to a chalkboard in order to prove by all kinds of mathematical equations that God does not exist. The first thing I'd like to point out is that the ladybug can't even hold the chalk. That's where we stand. God is so far above us that we cannot expect to come and judge him for what he says. but we can hear and we can understand. Now, when it comes to understanding biblical teaching about the role of women in the church, there seems to be danger on every side. There is the danger of controversy. Few issues have brought more division than this, the role of women in the local church. Entire denominations have split and reformed over this issue there's also the danger of letting culture overrule scripture no matter how they are understood god's instructions for women stand against the prevailing attitudes of contemporary society that's clear to the postmodern ear The verses that I have just read sound like gender discrimination. The very idea that women would be forbidden to teach men is scandalous to the world and to many within the church. There is also the danger of allowing personal opinion to distort our understanding of Scripture. Admittedly, not every verse is as beloved as John 3.16. Nevertheless, every verse of Scripture reveals the mind of God. And we do not pick and choose. We believe it, we place ourselves in submission to it, and we apply it to every area of our lives. And finally, there are difficulties within the text itself. What does Paul mean when he uses the words quietly? Submissiveness, teach, exercise authority each of those terms calls for careful definition. And we're reminded once again that the Scriptures were not written in English. They were written in Greek. So the question that we need to ask ultimately is, what did Paul intend when he used the Greek terminology in which he wrote? And in our English translations, do we have a faithful rendering into a second language of that original document? There are further questions. What's the precise relevance of Eve's deception as it's mentioned there in verse 14? What can it possibly mean that women are preserved through childbirth? And what on earth could that have to do with the subject of the biblical role of women, The previous section of Paul's letter to Timothy, which we looked at last week, ended with warnings about being immodest. This section contains warnings about being insubordinate, beginning with a positive command. Look at verse 11. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. And with that statement, Paul shatters conventional stereotypes. Not modern stereotypes, but ancient ones. The modern ear hears what Paul says here and responds with outrage. How dare Paul tell women to be quiet and submissive. The ancient ear would hear that much differently. The ancient ear might also have been outraged, but for a different reason. They would have said, Paul, how dare you encourage women to learn? In the Roman world, women were considered to be intellectually second class. It was widely accepted that females were academically inferior Thus, the educational system was designed primarily for men and not women. And if possible, the Jewish rabbis were even more chauvinistic than the Romans. According to the Talmud, the rabbis wrote, it would be better for the words of Torah to be burned than that they should be entrusted to a woman. Not surprisingly, Women played a very small role in public life and in the synagogue. The Babylonian Talmud explains the difference between men and women in worship. The men came to learn, the women came to hear. Hear, but not learn. The Word of God says nearly the opposite of what many Jews and Romans were saying in the first century. Before Paul makes any prohibition, he writes words of liberation. Let women learn. Because a woman is a human being made with a mind in the image of God, and as a result, God requires her to learn. It is the woman's responsibility before God to become a student of biblical truth. if you're looking for an example of countercultural nature of Christianity, we need look no further than 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. Now, the Bible is not afraid to confront culture. It is sometimes argued that Paul inherited negative attitudes about women from his rabbinic training, or that the New Testament is... Uh, Held prisoner by ancient patriarchal attitudes about gender. Here, we find just the opposite, as we do throughout the New Testament. The Gospels, the Book of Acts, the Epistles are full of examples of women engaged in vital ministry, many of them close personal friends of the Apostle Paul, whom he commends publicly for their ministry. It's not too much to say that One burden of Paul's ministry was to ensure that the gifts of women were used to their fullest extent. The Bible is the most effective force in history for lifting women to higher levels of respect, dignity, and freedom. Men who have named the name of Christ have not always lived up to that high bar of honor and respect which Scripture sets for the treatment of women. But no one has any reason to be ashamed of what the Scripture teaches in that regard. If there has been a problem, it has been a problem with obedience to Scripture, not with the Scripture itself. So women are to learn. But if a woman is to learn, how must she do it? A woman, Paul says, should learn quietly and with entire submissiveness. Now the word quietly is repeated there at the end of verse 12, you'll notice. Some translations use the word silent rather than quiet, but quiet is far closer to what Paul intends. The word does not mean that women have to keep their mouths shut. Rather, it refers to demeanor. It means here what it meant up earlier in the chapter when we saw Paul talking about the desired result of praying for kings and all who are in authority. What does Paul say there? Why should we do that, verse 2, so that we may lead a quiet and tranquil life? It's describing a quality of life. Paul isn't saying pray for kings and authority and then never open your mouth. On his last trip to Jerusalem, Paul was confronted by an angry mob outside of the barracks where he was being taken to be imprisoned. Luke describes what happened this way. He says, when he had given him permission, that is, when the Roman centurion had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand. And when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, saying, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. Now, two different Greek words are used to describe this crowd. First, the pe- people became hushed. Then they became quiet. And it's the latter word which Paul uses here in 1 Timothy 2. Not the word for keeping silent, but the word for being respectful. Paul's telling women to give their teachers the same undivided attention that he himself received when he spoke. In Jerusalem, women are also to learn, we're told, with entire submissiveness. To submit is to be obedient, to submit is to yield to authority. Here it means to respect the leadership and authority that God has given to the elders of the church, it means to receive their teaching in a spirit of cheerful agreement. When these two words are put together, quietly and submissive, they do not describe an unusual style of learning unique to women. Rather, they describe the only way that a person can learn anything at all. Any teacher knows it's impossible to teach someone who is talking all the time. That's the quiet part. But learning also requires a teachable spirit. It's impossible to teach someone who thinks he or she already has all the answers. To learn is to submit to the knowledge and authority of a teacher. Every good student is quiet and submissive, quiet and receptive. A wonderful example of this kind of submission is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. You remember the story. Jesus stopped at their home to rest, and while He was there, Martha was distracted with much serving. Martha was type A. Martha was concerned about the task. Meanwhile, Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to everything He said, and it made Martha rather angry because she was getting stuck with all of the work. While Mary is, in her opinion, just being lazy, sitting around while work needed to be done. And in her exasperation, she finally complains to Jesus, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. And here's what Jesus did in response. He did not tell Mary to go back to the kitchen where she belonged. He did not relegate her to so-called women's work. Instead, he said, Mary has chosen the good portion, and it will not be taken away from her. The words of Christ confirm the dignity and necessity of women becoming students of the Scripture. They also serve as a rebuke to any man or woman who thinks theology is a male enterprise. What Mary was learning from Jesus was the very word of God. She was learning doctrinal truth and how to apply it in daily life. God wants women to be knowledgeable in the scriptures and sound in their theology. As Luke describes that event, he makes special mention of the way that Mary learned. She sat at the Lord's feet, listening to His teaching. Mary learned in the rabbinic style. She kept her place. She was listening rather than talking. She was sitting at Jesus' feet, taking the position of submission to teaching authority. In other words, as Mary learned quietly and with all submissiveness, this is what was happening as she sat there at the feet of Jesus. This is the way all God's people learn. They sit at the feet of their Master, even when He is speaking through the voice of a preacher. When we sit under the preaching of the Word, it's the voice of Christ that we're listening to, Paul says in Romans. Our aim always must be to learn, quietly and with submissiveness. So why does Paul single out women? Because this was a new thing for women, as we've already discussed. Women able to come in and sit under the teaching and learn, that's unusual. You're not used to that. They need to be taught how to do that. We sit at the feet of our Master, quietly and with submissive I'll be attending a pastor's conference tomorrow as I sit under the teaching of other men I will have a choice to make. I could sit there critiquing the other preachers. I could sit there thinking about how I would approach this or that text differently if I was preaching it. Or, as I hope will be the case, I could quiet my mind so as to learn and submit, not so much to another preacher, but to the Word of God, to the Lord Himself, who wants me to sit at His feet as Mary did. Now note too how Paul qualifies his discussion of submission. He speaks of receiving instruction with entire submissiveness. Elsewhere in Scripture, the Bible says much the same thing to women in the context of marriage. Wives, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The Bible doesn't speak of partial submission. It doesn't say grudging submission. It says full submission, entire submission. Scripture says, All submissiveness. Entire submissiveness. Because full submission is really the only kind of submission there is. Any other kind of submission is not really submission at all. Partial submission reserves the right to rebel. It leaves room to manipulate and to control Grudging submission reserves the right to grumble. It leaves room for resentment and bitterness when a decision is made which is not the decision that I would make. True submission is total submission. Entire submission reveals a heart of surrender to God in this context. Partial submission reveals a heart which is not surrendered at all, but wishes to sit on its own throne. You might be thinking that if someone is in partial submission, well, then they're partly surrendered. Here's the problem with that. When someone submits only when and how they decide, it's not Christ who is sitting on the throne. They are. I've had many, many occasions on which I've spoken of these things to husbands and wives and couple, engaged couples. They're looking toward marriage. And in more than, and, and more than once, the woman will respond to this teaching by asking, "How can I submit to something that I disagree with?" And here's what you need to understand. If you submit only when you agree, you're not submitting at all. You agree. It's something you would do anyway. Submission comes into play when it's something you'd rather not do. When the policeman rolls up behind you with lights flashing and you need to pull over and you'd rather not, thank you very much, but you're going to submit. That's what submission is. There's a reason Paul qualifies his command. He speaks here of entire submissiveness. In chapter 5 of Ephesians, he tells women to submit to their husbands in everything. Now, we know from comparing Scripture with Scripture that that is qualified because it doesn't necessitate being submissive to someone who is trying to get you to sin, for instance. But if it's not that kind of issue, if you, don't have to make a, if you don't have to make a choice between submitting to a human being and submitting to God, Paul says, whether it's the elders of your church, whether it's your husband, women, you are to be in submission. Now, if obviously, I, I, I'm coming here saying these things this morning, knowing very well that this is a, a dirty word in contemporary culture. It goes against everything that Americans hold most dear. Freedom, power, independence. Submission can also be a threatening word because sometimes it has been taken as an excuse for abuse. But as those who seek to be faithful to Christ and to His Word, we have a responsibility, don't we, never to allow the idea of submission to become a justification for abuse we also have a responsibility to understand submission in its true biblical sense, which includes resisting the urge to think of submission as something negative. It is not. Keep in mind that the men to whom women are called to submit in the church are men who have met the high qualification for elders which Paul is going to lay out for us in the next chapter, they are not to be domineering tyrants, but gentle servant leaders. Wherever, we, the, the, wherever the idea of submission appears in the New Testament, it is always stated in positive terms the Bible insists that it is a wonderful thing to submit to God-given authority, whether that's in the, rela- in the marriage relationship, in the relationship between elders and members of the church, within the local church, whether we're submitting to governing authorities, whether it's an employee submitting to his employer. In every one of the human relationships which Scripture addresses... Submission is seen as a good, positive thing, which will bring about blessing. That doesn't mean it's an easy thing. It goes against our nature. Because our nature is focused on self. Our culture is focused on self. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. That's the natural response to these things. But the Lord says, no, no, no. There are roles in all human society, in all human relationships. There are roles. And if you follow the wisdom which I am setting forth in my word, there will be blessing within those relationships. You see this beauty in the example of Jesus Christ Himself. The Son has every attribute that the Father has. They are equal in power and glory and every divine characteristic. Nevertheless, the Son submitted to the will of the Father even unto His death on the cross. In the cross of Christ, we see that submission does not entail coercion. Christ went to the cross freely, to fulfill his Father's will. Now as Paul tells women to learn, he also tells them not to teach. At least they are not to teach in a particular context. The command is followed by a prohibition, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. You'll note that Verse 11 and verse 12 are joined together by the conjunction but. That tells you that Paul is drawing a contrast. Women are to learn, but not to teach. Clearly, Paul is not giving an absolute prohibition against women teaching. That would fly in the face of the rest of Scripture for instance, in Titus chapter 2, where the same author, the Apostle Paul, writes this, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their wives, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. It's clear that at least certain kinds of teaching are to be carried out universally within the church. We are to teach one another. I do not simply teach. I learn. I learn from those who are not elders among us, but whom God has given a gift of teaching. I learn from those who come to me and look at my life and say, Pastor I think you need to check this out. You need to examine what's going on here in your life. That's a blessing. That's teaching. There are all kinds of ways that women can exercise their gifts within the church. In contexts outside of the local church. We even see examples of women involved in the teaching of men. One example is Priscilla, who with her husband explained to Apollos the way of God more accurately. She did this in spite of the fact that Apollos was an eloquent man, mighty in the Scriptures. There's at least one place where it's never appropriate for women to teach, however, and that is in the authoritative proclamation of God's Word in the context of public worship Of the church. And here it's important to remember the context of Paul's command. Since the beginning of this chapter, Paul has been dealing with the public gathering of God's people for worship in the local church. What he writes is not intended to govern every situation, everywhere, at all times. It applies especially to those occasions when the church gathers together for the authoritative preaching of the word, as we're doing now. The word teach means to instruct. It has a very specific meaning in the pastoral epistles 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. It refers to the exposition of the scriptures in the official teaching of sound doctrine within the church. It refers to what I'm doing at this moment. Teaching is what Paul did in his official role as an apostle. It is what the elders of the church are ordained to do, which explains why eldership is the next subject Paul's going to address, and that the central qualification for elders, which sets them apart from deacons and others in the church, is the ability to teach. What the Holy Spirit does not permit women to do is to transmit apostolic doctrine publicly authoritatively. To put it more simply, the main thing that God forbids women to do is to preach and to exercise doctrinal and disciplinary authority which is tied to the preaching ministry. Now, incidentally, most men are also forbidden from fulfilling that role. When we move into chapter 3 next week, we'll find that there are certain qualifications which must be met for those who assume teaching and doctrinal authority within the church. A whole list of qualifications. And most don't meet those qualifications. It's not like women can't teach, but all men can. What a disaster that would be. And the Scripture doesn't say that all women must submit to all men. Rather, Paul is teaching here that all women are to submit to the teaching discipline of the elders, of the pastors of the church. In that respect, they are no different from Christian men who are not elders. Just as in the realm of marriage, Paul doesn't say women have to submit to all men. He says, no, women, submit to your husbands. Even as your husbands love you with the sacrificial love of Christ. One sign that Paul and the Holy Spirit have preaching in mind in 1 Timothy 2:12 is the way that teaching is coordinated with having authority. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And there's very good evidence that those two terms ought to be put together. What Paul's teaching about is what Paul's talking about is teaching authority within the church the authoritative doctrinal teaching in the church. Just as let a woman learn quietly in verse 11 is set against, I do not permit a woman to teach in verse 12, so also with entire submissiveness in verse 11 stands in opposition to, I do not permit a woman to exercise authority over a man in verse 12. Learning is contrasted with teaching. Submitting to authority is contrasted with exercising authority. Paul is framing his discussion this way for a reason. Paul's not talking about the abuse of authority here, but about its rightful exercise by elders within the church. And where is such authority exercised? In the eldership. Now, the elders certainly can permit, as we do, other people to teach. Teaching takes place, as it did this morning, after our Scripture reading. Teaching takes place during our discipleship hour. Teaching takes place during our our, our women's ministry meetings and and our men's breakfasts. And it's not always Joe or I who are teaching, but Joe Joe and I are always responsible for what's being taught. The ultimate responsibility lies with us. Now aside from that one function, women are encouraged to seek out all avenues of service, fully exercising your gifts for the greater benefit of the body of Christ. Now the preceding explanation has been the nearly universal understanding of the Christian church for 2,000 years. With few exceptions, Only in the late 20th century did this understanding come under attack. The liberal strategy has been to deny the authority of these verses completely. Some say that Paul didn't even write this. Some say that verse 12 in particular is only Paul's private opinion. He's not speaking for God. He's only speaking for himself. As if to say, I personally do not allow a woman to teach or claim inordinate authority. Of course, that's not what Paul's saying. That's that's found nowhere in the text. Verse 12 ought to be understood as follows. I, that is to say, I, Paul, who have been appointed by God as an apostle, do not permit women to teach. It's not a private opinion. It's an apostolic command with ongoing authority in the church. Others say that Paul was simply mistaken. He wanted to keep women from the pulpit because he was a chauvinist because he was limited by Jewish and Greek attitudes about the value of women. He was was simply upholding the patriarchy. Of course, you can't say something like that without also denying the inspiration and authority of the Scripture. Paul did not allow women to preach because God does not allow it. Here it is good to heed the words of the Apostle Peter. We'll be looking at these this afternoon as well who said that Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the rest of the Scriptures. At a very early date, somewhere around 60 A.D. or before, Peter already considered Paul's writings to be scripture. At the same time, it must also be denied that either God Himself or Paul is a chauvinist. The better these verses are understood, the clearer it becomes that they do not demean women in any way. Rather, they establish for the church the means by which the church should function as Paul says elsewhere, decently and in order, according to the pattern established even from creation, which is how Paul grounds his argument. While the liberal approach is to deny the authority of these verses entirely, the strategy of so-called evangelical feminists is to limit their application by saying that Paul was addressing a specific circumstance taking place in the church of Ephesus at that time. Now, it should raise all kinds of warning flags whenever anyone suddenly decides that a particular portion of Scripture no longer counts, no longer applies. If you come to this passage and you read the words of Paul who says, I do not allow a woman to teach, and then you come away saying that what Paul really meant was that I do allow women to teach, you need to rethink your interpretive process. These instructions were not just for Ephesus. As we saw earlier, chapter 3, verse 15, Paul's purpose statement I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. That's not just Ephesus, that's the church in every place at every time. The Holy Spirit gave these instructions to Christians and to all churches everywhere. And as I alluded to earlier, this is confirmed by verses 13 and 14. Paul bases his teaching not on any passing circumstance, but on creation. In doing so, the command is universalized. It applies to the church in every place and every time. Within Paul's argument from creation, he references two aspects of that creation. Listen to what Paul says, beginning with verse 13. For, that means because, that's how Paul's using that word. He's giving an explanation for his previous command. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So the first argument from creation is the order of creation. We have no time. But if we did, we could go back to Genesis chapter 2 and see that this hierarchy, this distinction in roles between men and women was not something that came along later as a result of the fall. It was a part of the original creation which God said was entirely good. Adam was created first and then Eve. The other aspect of the creation account which Paul references is the fall. That's what he's referencing in verse 14. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Now understand what Paul's doing here and what he's not doing. He's not trying to argue that women are more susceptible to deception. He's making a simple and obvious reference to historical fact. It was the woman who was deceived and not the man. You go back and you read Genesis chapter 3, and that's what we see. Now we need to understand Paul's argument here because it's similar to the argument he's going to continue in verse 15. His argument is not about gullibility. His argument is about role distinction. It was Adam's role in the garden to lead. It was Adam's role to protect. It was Adam's role to step in between Eve and the serpent and to say, listen, snake, if you want to talk to someone, you talk to me. But Adam abdicated that role leaving his wife unprotected and functioning herself in a role which was not intended for her. With the result that it was Eve who was deceived and fell into transgression because she was the one talking to the serpent when it should have been Adam. All of this is confirmed by the rest of Scripture, which places all of the onus and responsibility for the fall on the shoulders of of Adam, even though it was Eve who was deceived, and who first ate the fruit, and who then gave it to Adam to eat. The responsibility for the fall fell upon Adam, even though Eve ate first, because Adam was responsible for the exercise of headship in that relationship, and he failed. And it's that understanding of respective roles that Paul continues to address in verse 15. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity and self-restraint. What on earth does childbearing have to do with any of this? There's no need to complicate this any more than is necessary. The word translated in some translations as saved is not and cannot be referring to spiritual salvation. We start there. The New American Standard is much better when it says preserved, although, even better would be fulfilled. We need to hear what Paul is saying because once again, if we, we, we find the world as it follows after the father of lies, proclaiming his lies and destroying lives in the process. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, women, don't waste your life longing for a role which is not yours. Don't descend into bitterness and resentment, desiring something which God has not seen fit to give you. Rather, understand and rejoice in the amazing gift that He has given to you. The world, everywhere we turn today, belittles motherhood. God honors it and calls upon His people to hold motherhood in a high position. To be a mother is to be a life giver. You will be preserved, you will be fulfilled, not by seeking something which is not rightfully yours, but by rejoicing in the great and high privilege which is yours, and by doing so, living a life of faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Have you ever met someone living a life of faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint who was also bitter and resentful? You can't do it. Those things don't fit together. It's impossible. If we are to be joyful servants of Christ, we must understand that to which we have been called. And we must rejoice in it and be content in it and live faithfully in it. But if we, con- if we covet something that is not for us, whether due to the roles God has established or the qualifications that He has laid down, we will find ourselves most miserable. We've come to the end of our message, and I'm still waiting for the first amen. (laughs) May we each rejoice in what God has for us and find their contentment knowing that God does All things well. Father, make it so, we ask. Glorify Yourself, Father, in us. As we stand against the culture. As the culture stands against You and Your truth. This we ask in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.